So we're in Revelation this morning, chapter 12, moving at high speed, though it may not feel like it. We can go a lot slower than we're going, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> um, this chapter is really interesting uh, for a couple of reasons, um, so I need to preface it. Uh, one is that this is, in many ways, the theological center of the whole book. It's like the cliff notes of Revelation, right? And it's, it's almost like a, almost a summary, if not a summary exactly, as, as just like the, the, the theological foundation of the whole book. If you want to understand the themes of the book of Revelation, this would be where I would point you right up front, okay? And the structure of this chapter is a lot like the book, okay? It can be confusing, okay, because it repeats, it repeats three times. There are three sections, and I'll point them out to you as we go. Um, but each section covers the same themes and the same time period just from different vantage points, okay? And once you understand that, the chapter becomes a lot easier to understand, all right? Um, and I've given in your notes, by the way, if you don't have notes uh, and you want them, I'm not a notes person when I'm listening to a sermon, but if you are a notes person, there's some back there. We also have them in Spanish if you want them. Um, so the three sections are verses 1 through 6, then 7 through 12, and finally 13 through 17. The first and third section are almost like bookends. They're almost exact repetitions, almost, with a couple of really interesting details added in the last section. So the overall theme uh, is, is that behind the persecution of the church, which we've talked about a lot and we've seen a lot throughout the book of Revelation, is that, that behind that persecution is Satan, Okay. It's a spiritual thing, not just a circumstantial, physical, natural thing that's happening to these people and to us. Um, and Satan hates them for some very specific reasons. Satan hates you for some very specific reasons. And so we're going to talk a little lot, actually, about the devil. This is one of the most direct places in Scripture that you can go to to understand who Satan is, okay? And by me bringing him up, I'm going to open up a whole can of worms. For a lot of you who are not used to this kind of talk, all right? And there's no way I can put the, can of wor the worms back in the can this morning, all right? The worms are coming out of the can, but not all of them are going back in the can, all right? It's just how it is, all right? And so my plan is to, to stick to the text this morning and resist the temptation to branch off into a whole lot of other things. But I will branch off into a whole lot of other things when we're done with, with Revelation, all right? We'll talk about angels and demons and what the Bible actually says about that stuff and all the things that it doesn't say, <laughs> right, about those things. We'll do that later. So I'm recognizing up front, I'm opening a can of worms, I'm going to stick to the text and be a good expositional preacher this morning, all right? I'm going to stick to it. All right. Revelation, the whole book, focuses on the persecution of the church because of their witness of, to Christ. That's kind of a good summary of the whole book, right? It's also a good summary of the church age and what it is we're doing here, right? We're just bearing witness to Christ. Then, when we bear witness to Christ, we saw last week, the wrath of, there's also the wrath of God against unbelievers and the blowback against us because of we're bearing witness to Christ. Those are the two things that are happening in the world supernaturally. Is God is pouring out wrath on unbelievers, trying to get at least some of them to repent and come into the church, come out of the storm, come out of the rain, come into 
the church. Others will harden their heart against God because of his wrath. We've seen that. Jesus is saying through John that all this is ultimately will serve his purpose for his glory. Christ stands in absolute authority over all of it. Okay? So we're going to address the topic of Satan this morning, this text will, but we are not going to give glory to him. We give glory to God. All right? So that's kind of the tone of where we're going this morning. All right. Chapter 12, the first six verses, that's the first section of three in the chapter. Let's read it. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. <clears throat> his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was a, has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Tons of imagery, right? So let's go back and work through the images and see what we can find out, okay? <clears throat> First, the woman. Who is she? I would say, I disagree with the Catholics, this is not Mary, okay? Um. There's also some cults that have some weird things to say about it. It's a really fun Google search. Um, the woman represents all the saints, all believers, both Jew and Gentile, across all of time, before and after Jesus. Okay? And in different places in the chapter, you'll see sometimes it's, it's referring to all the saints prior to Jesus, which is what we just read, and some, and then later it'll be after. Okay? So on the whole, if you look at the whole chapter, who is this woman? This is, these are all the saints, all the Christians. The clearest evidence of this is the 12 stars on her crown. Remember before Jesus, there were 12 tribes of Israel, right? Those 12 tribes are reconstituted in the 12 apostles. I don't know if you ever thought about that before. It's not a coincidence that there were 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Jesus could have had 13. He could have had 10. He chose 12 because he's making a point. This is that. That is this. This is the new that, okay? It's the new tribe. It's the church, all right? She has 12 stars. That's a great clue, all right? Um, and then, of course, those 12 apostles then multiplied themselves in their disciples, which ultimately, ultimately leads to us, okay, the church. This could also be, I think it also is, um, an allusion to Genesis 3.15, where Eve, after the fall, was told by God that she would have enmity or strife, or conflict with the serpent, who is, we know is Satan. But a male offspring would crush his head. It's a really interesting scripture. That Genesis 3.15, a very short scripture, is, is the, the plan of God, the mission of God, the great commission in seed form. All right? There's a promise there that a male offspring would crush the head of Satan. This ultimately leads us to the same conclusion, all right? that this is the church. Who's going to crush Satan's head? Jesus. 
Christ is the fulfillment of that promise to Eve, and he's completing that work through his church. So I think that's true, that this woman could be an allusion to Genesis 3.15. The woman here is pregnant and in labor, waiting to give birth to one that will overcome Satan. All right, who's that one? That that part of chapter 12 was fairly obvious, I think. Who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron? That's Jesus. This places the timing of this vision before, just before the first coming, okay, just before Christmas, the first Christmas, right? The red dragon is obvious. It's Satan. It's interpreted for us, okay? The seven heads, the ten horns, the seven diadems, what's that all about? That one's harder. Uh, probably, I use the word probably or maybe, just communicating the fullness of his authority. The number seven is all over Revelation and it always means the same thing, which is just complete and full, like all of it, right? Um, the whole amount, nothing left out. The stars that the dragon cast down are probably referring to the same stars in the woman's crown, uh, probably, which w- would refer to the persecution or martyrdom of believers. Satan tried to destroy Jesus, but he rose again. Jesus did. The woman is also called into the wilderness to be near God. That part is confusing if you don't understand. You could, if you do a study of the word wilderness or desert in the Bible and look at the different ways and what it means, it's really interesting because it's not always negative. God calls his people out into the wilderness, into the desert, but then he draws to be near him as a place of protection where others won't go. He calls his people, into a place that everyone else is scared to go so their enemies don't follow them. And there he is near them and close to them and communes with them and protects them and nourishes them. From God's perspective, wilderness is not a negative. Maybe from ours, we'd rather him meet us where we're at instead of drawing us into the wilderness, but that's not a negative, and it's certainly not, not here. And then they have the 1260 days, which we've talked about forever, um, which I believe is just the church age, the time we're in right now, okay? All right, so let's go a little further, and we'll start to see how this applies to this next session. Verse 7 through 9, verses 7 through 9. Now remember, this is repeating, so you have to reset your mental timeline. You know when you read, your brain is this weird thing. If you read a story or hear a story, you create, without thinking about it, a timeline in your brain of events to keep up with the story. And a really bad storyteller confuses your timeline, right? They jump around and you get confused, like, what, wait, what happened? When did that, what, right? Because you're doing this thing in your head that you don't realize you're doing. So when you're reading Revelation and you hit the next section, you got to reset your timeline, go back, and now you're covering the same ground from a different angle, Okay. Verse 7, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. We know who the dragon is, Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back. Bad idea. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Most, if not all, scholars agree that this happened prior to creation, perhaps immediately before. There's this revolt in heaven. 
Satan was originally an angel. And the word Satan just means accuser. It wasn't originally a, a proper name. He got named that because that's what it is. Right, we'll talk about that in a minute. All right, then we have verse 10, the next part of this section. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. There's actually a lot of information about the devil there. He knows his time is short. He's desperate. He's in a panic. He's in a constant panic. He's freaking out. Time is short. Imagine having, having an eternal perspective and then being cast down into time knowing that your time is short. Think about how short the earth's time is compared to eternity. It's a blink of an eye. So there's a panic. But look what he does. His name means accuser or adversary. It's clear in these passages that Satan is not a free agent. He's been what? Cast down. Not let go. Not released. Picked up and thrown in disgust. Tossed out of the front door like a piece of trash. Just tossed. Cast down. That's a picture of God's not just he has a little bit more authority and a little bit more strength than the devil, and he had to wrestle with him really hard out the front door. No, that's not what it's saying. He was picked up and effortlessly thrown down. Like what you do with a trash bag. Well, what my son does with the trash bag, because I make him take out the trash We also see that Satan is obsessed with accusing God's people constantly, so much so that it's, it's his name. It's his primary thing. It's his favorite thing. He's an accuser. We see an example of this when Satan comes before God and accuses Job. If you go back and read just the first chapter of Job, it's a great illustration of what that looks like in real life. Okay? Is he's just constantly going, God, what about Vic? I don't like Vic. He's constantly accusing you and all of us to God. That's what he does. Satan is constantly, obsessively accusing you to each other. Whispering in your ear, that person just doesn't. They don't care about you. Or that person is against you. They're over there thinking right now of ways to make your life more difficult. They're just plotting, scheming against you. You're like the center of their universe. They're just, just not good people. That person is just, bless their heart. <laughs> bless her little heart. Constantly whispering and accusing. He accuses you to each other. He accuses you in your mind directly. And he accuses you to God. 
Satan goes before God and he accuses you to him. He's the whiniest tattletale. That Ben Cotton, he's not going to be faithful to you. You're blessing him too much. Mess with his life and he'll just walk out. And God says, no, he won't because I won't let him. It's the same thing he does to you about other people, and he does it to you, especially in those quiet moments like Vic was talking about, like in your car or right before you go to sleep when you get up in the morning and you're sitting on the toilet, whatever your quiet moments are. (laughs) The bathroom is a great place for either God or Satan to visit you (laughs) because you're quiet, right? 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 Hopefully not your toddlers. You know, I'm past that stage and they don't visit me in the bathroom anymore. But you know what I mean, right? You get quiet and there's no distraction. And all of a sudden there's this voice that says, you are a failure. You can't get anything right. Everybody around you, including God, just tolerates your presence and makes exceptions for you, but they don't actually value or respect or need you. Your contribution means nothing. You have no impact on anybody. Why even go to church? Why even make friends? Why do anything? Why leave the house? Why do it? Your impact means nothing. You have nothing to give. You're just a loser and a failure, and he is constantly saying this to you, right? Constantly. Or some of you who are weirdly competent people, he's always saying, wow, you're really something. You got this? Wow, impressive. Impressive comment in that conversation. You should speak up more often how wise and smart and humble you are. You're the most humble person they know. If only they knew how humble you are. Definitely more humble than that guy. He's constantly speaking and accusing. And sometimes the person you are, he is accusing, is yourself. Quite often it is. And when you come into agreement with the accuser, You become something like his emissary, his ambassador. And he no longer has to accuse that person because you're faithfully doing it for him. You have picked up the baton. Satan said, here, now that I've established what I say is the truth about that person or about you, here, you take it and you beat yourself for a while. I have some other things to do. And then you say, sure, because you have moved into agreement with what he says about you or about that person. Call that bitterness. Somebody hurts you or just ignores you or overlooks you or whatever it is. And Satan uses that one true fact (laughs) and stabs you with it over and over again and says, boy, that that is the complete and total definition of that person. That person's one weakness or one bad moment or one bad thing, one bad act, one sin 
That is all that they are. And that's all that's how you see them. That's his job. That's what he does. So I hope you get the point. Don't agree with him. <laughs> right? He's a great lawyer, which is ironic, isn't it? Satan is a good lawyer. He knows all the facts, and he makes a great case against you and against other people. He doesn't make stuff up. He doesn't have to. All you have to do is look around and find all the weaknesses and failures in yourself and other people. It's not hard to see, is it? And they're true. The very idea that Satan, well, it sounds right. He sounds right. He sounds true. He has evidence. He has facts against me. And so it's quite easy to just believe him. But the truth is, the real truth is that you're saved by the blood of the Lamb, which we're going to get to in a minute. So Satan is an accuser. It's his identity. It's what he does. And he never rests. He never grows tired of doing it. So you must be on your guard all the time. All right. Reset your mental timeline again. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So now we're just after the birth of Jesus. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. There it is again. To the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years, 1,260 days. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So the end of verse 17, just a quick note about the text, probably belongs to the beginning of chapter 13. And so it would be, and I stood on the sand of the sea. So just a reminder, your chapter breaks and verse numbers are not inspired scripture. They were added much later to help us find things, right? When we started doing stuff like what I'm doing, right? And so it's probably a mistake to put that verse in there because it fits much better in chapter 13, all right? Um, so Satan tried many times to destroy ancient Israel, right? That flood, sending a flood, try to wipe, just wipe them off the planet Earth. Many, just read the book of Esther, right? Tried many times to, World War II, right? Another attempt to wipe them off the planet. And each time God kept it from happening. Satan has continued to try this with the New Testament church. He just wants us gone. He wants us blotted out. And he does, does so simply because we are the family of Jesus. We are his offspring. We are his family. He hates us, not because we're so special, but because we look like Jesus. And he sees that Christ is in us. So the Holy Spirit comes in you, the thing that makes you amazing, that you're in Christ. The, the, the deepest thing of Christianity that there is, like what that means, that we are in Christ, unified with Christ, and all the, the amazing things that that means is also what makes him hate you so much. 
is that you, are, you look like Jesus, you are his offspring, and he tried to kill Jesus, and he couldn't, so now he's turned his wrath and his anger towards you and I. So we shouldn't underestimate him. We should not be afraid of him. <laughs> we shouldn't underestimate him. Let's go back to verses 10 through 12 and to learn some things about what it means to overcome him. I'll read it again. This is that middle section of the three. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have, con- they, verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So Jesus has the authority, not the accuser. He throws him down. And it's not, like I said, it's not just a little bit more authority. It's not like if I wrestled Owen, because Owen, if I get him motivated, can almost take me. Almost. He's getting closer every day, and it's getting scary. There's a lot less wrestling going on in our house now than there used to be. But he almost beats me, but I can ultimately probably push him out the back door. That is not how that this is an absolute, total, eternally great authority and power over one who is not eternally great. Okay? But interestingly enough, the accused, that's us, are the ones conquering in this scripture. That feels a little, little crazy to me. But that's what it says. And we do it two ways. One is the blood of the lamb, and the second is the word of our witness, or the word of our testimony. So let's talk about the blood of the lamb. We could go to many scriptures here. I'll just do Hebrews 9. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that's the tabernacle, the temple, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for, and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So you are redeemed, purchased, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. That means that there are two ways to defend against an accuser, a prosecutor, which is Satan. One, you prove the facts wrong. The other is you get pardoned. Now, most of us try the first one, and it's a a non-starter. It's a fail every time. I did not do that thing. It was her fault. And she says, I did not do that thing. It was his fault. And we blame shift or we say, that didn't really happen. I didn't really mean it. We said a lot of things we didn't mean. 
No, the problem is, the reason you're having this conversation after your fight, husbands and wives, is because you did mean those things. You said a lot of things that you did mean. If you didn't mean them, you wouldn't have to talk about them again. Right? We said a lot of things we meant, and we shouldn't mean them. That's more, that's more of what you should talk about, right? But this is what we do, right? We feel the accuser saying, you did this, you did that, you did that. He comes to you with the list, and you say, okay, my strategy is going to be to defend myself against the accuracy of his evidence. That's inadmissible, Satan. That's not really true. That's not how it went down. And we do that, and we work, and we work, and work, and eventually you get your back against the wall, and he has pinned you with something you can't weasel out of or blame on someone else. And then what do you do? You're lost. You go right down what I call the toilet bowl. Right down the hole. Or a better strategy would be to lean on the pardon of Jesus. Yes, I did do that. I meant every word. I am a wicked sinner. And it is what I did. It is what I said. It is what I felt. And there is absolutely no excuse. It was completely my fault. Yet, I have been pardoned by the king. Jesus died for that. His blood covers it. And I am clean. That is not who I am. It's what I did. But that guy's dead. I've been pardoned. I'm telling you, you start having conversations like that with the devil when the accuser comes and says that, he'll, he'll leave you alone. Because all he's done is managed to build your faith, which is not what he wants to do. I'll tell you what else. It's one thing to do this for yourself, but what about for other people? How often do you say when he comes and accuses someone else to you? What's the answer? They, well, maybe they just didn't mean that. Maybe they, or maybe they did. Maybe what that person did to you was absolutely wicked and intentional. What do you do then? If your strategy is to minimize what people do to you and make it not so bad so that you can feel better and go on with your life, what about when someone does something to you that is inexcusable? It's a bad strategy. The better strategy is to say, I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And whatever curse they meant for evil, God will make good. And two, they are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, or should be. If they're a fellow believer, that's what you say. And you begin to speak blessing and forgiveness over them, that they are cleansed, that that is not who they are. Yeah, what they said, what they did, or their neglect, or whatever it is, was terrible. But Jesus died for it. And then you see them, now you have faith for them. And Satan's like, oh, can't get this guy one way or the other. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. 
We are guilty. There's no sense in denying it. Yet in Christ, we have been pardoned. And that, in that way, the power of the accuser has been nullified and cut short. So stop defending yourself. Stop defending yourself to yourself. Stop defending yourself to other people. Just start pleading the blood. It's the only way out of the toilet bowl. It's the only way out. You feel yourself going around, down into bitterness, anger, frustration, failure, self-hatred. Just trying to think positively doesn't do it. Second weapon is the word of our witness or the word of our testimony. It's the same word, okay? Which is interesting, which really connects this back to last week and the two witnesses bearing witness about Christ. We acknowledge him as Messiah and Lord. So last week you looked at the two prophetic witnesses. Satan's attacks against us are not about us. It is about the image of Christ in us and the mission of Christ that we are called to. Jesus is multiplying worshipers across the world. And every time a new disciple is made, Satan feels his defeat that much more. It's one more heel crushing his head. As he really wants to distract you from that mission. Whatever your part is in that mission, he wants you to get off of it. He wants you to stop it because every time you do it, he feels his defeat looming large in front of him and getting closer and closer and closer. It's one more heel pressing his head against the floor. I think most of his attack against us is to get us off the mission. Too often we allow spiritual warfare to take us off it. Fighting the devil is not a calling, by the way. Really have some issues with ministries solely dedicated to deliverance. Where is that? It's just not here. There is the gift of discernment, people gifted to discern spirits and those sorts of things. But that is not your life's purpose. That is a distraction from your life's purpose, which is to bear witness about Christ. And if along the way you kick him in the teeth a few times, that's great. But that's not why you exist. Wouldn't Satan rather have you swinging and hitting a punching bag all the time instead of actually going and doing what he's called, God's called you to do? Sometimes you have to resist the devil because he comes at you. But that should never be your occupation. It should never be your obsession. It should never be your focus. Jesus and his glory should be your focus. It should be the thing you look at most often. So completing the mission of bearing witness is the best strategy for the accuser's defeat. It will lead to the return of Jesus and to the completion of Satan's casting down where he and all of his legion are thrown into hell forever. That is his destiny. And so the quicker we get there, the less we have to deal with him. So let's get on it, right? I think some of us allow Satan to disarm us too easily. Stirs up a bunch of trouble in your life. I'll be a physical illness, 
might be depression, mental illness, emotional issues, family, relationship issues, just self-loathing, whatever your weakness of choice is. And he just stirs the pot, and you get laser-focused tunnel vision on that thing that he's doing and how awful and terrible it is. And you get sucked right down the toilet bowl. And what are you not doing? You're not doing what God's called you to do. The output of your life has stopped. And it's just about you. Isn't that what happens? The, your focus, even, even if you're married and you have kids that are like right there in front of you, <laughs> your circle gets so small you can't even see them anymore. And it's just you. And you have been disarmed. You are no longer effective in the kingdom. And he's happy with you that way. And so the sooner we learn to plead the blood of Jesus, get our hearts straight, and get back to work, the better off we are. Verse 12 is interesting. Basically what it says is Satan has already conquered, but also not yet. Sometimes we talk about the kingdom of God, we're living in the already and the not yet. The, the, that frustrating space between the promise and the fulfillment. It's like we've been, Jesus is coming soon. It's all over the Bible. If you go back before Jesus, you had the promise that one would come and crush the head of Satan in Genesis. And then they had to wait until Jesus, the Messiah, came. And they lived in between the promise and the fulfillment, right? And God was with them. So it wasn't that God wasn't with them. It was that he promised something. And he says, okay, now you're going to have to wait for it. Then Jesus comes, he does this amazing thing, he gets all the authority, he gives us the authority, he says, now go do what I've been doing, make disciples, and then he leaves, and he sends the Holy Spirit, so we're not alone, and he says, but I'm coming back, and we're living in the same place. So we don't fear the devil, we don't fear him, but we take him seriously. What I find is that we have this pendulum swing thing in the church. It's either a weird kind of fear or obsession with demons and satan and all of that or this like naive obliviousness like none of that's real i mean i know it is technically like technically it's real but we we never resist him we never pray against him we never never address him and deal with him in our life and we let him eat our lunch constantly and disarm us constantly both are wrong. So this scripture is really well balanced, I think. It's like he's been defeated. Jesus has all authority. He's been cast down. We do not need to be afraid of him, but take him seriously. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's a great scripture. The word resist is like to set yourself against. To, 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 it's not a like start swinging and go after him word it's just to like set yourself against him just resist him it doesn't take a lot of work you can even say i resist you in the name of jesus consider yourself resisted and what will he do not it doesn't say he will just stop messing with you or he'll lay off it says he will flee from you That's what fleeing is. Ah! Running the other way. 
It's a complete panicking run, like full tilt. Get me out of here. Scary thing. So even Alina over there. Sweet young Alina who couldn't scare a scaredy cat. She's so nice. When she says, Satan, I resist you in the name of Jesus. It, she becomes the scariest thing he's ever seen. And he flees and runs away. Well, that's power, isn't it? The greatest power is the power you don't possess yourself in your own strength. It's the power you possess in Christ, who is the one who has all authority. So you submit yourself to God first. That's key, right? If you're not a believer, if you're not submitted to Christ, this is not true of you. You're actually Satan's doormat. And any time he wants to run you over and make you his plaything, he can. And just squash you over and over and over again. Take you off in this direction with a distraction. Take you over in this direction. Make you do this or do this or act that way or feel this way. You're his doormat. And it's only the mercy of God that keeps you protected from his full anger and wrath against you. But in Christ, just resisting him is enough to make him flee. That's great news. So submit yourself to God, then all you need to do is oppose him. I remember one time, I'll tell you this quick story. I hadn't planned on telling, but I'll tell it. As I was um, in England for a little while, and I was new there, and we was a ministry to drug addicts, and this guy came in who was very demonized. And by very, I mean very. And so he, got, he became a Christian, and we were praying for him one day because he had a lot of weird things going on, okay? And so we're praying for me and about five other people, and he's doing all this weird stuff. And basically these demons were not doing what we told them to do. And we were stomping around, just yelling and trying to, you know, maybe if we pray a different prayer, we'll get somewhere. Maybe... Maybe if we just get, pray louder, he'll be like, whoa, okay, I'll do what you say. And we just stop doing it. And my, I remember my voice being sore, right? It's like an hour or two of this silliness. And then there was this, uh, the leader of the ministry was there in town, and he came walking through the room trying to get to the kitchen, just tiptoeing, right? And it was like a weird Paul moment where the demon says out of the guy, I know you, don't you come over here. I'm not making this up. I was there. Just like they did with Paul. Jesus I know, Paul I know. <laughs> this guy I know. And he's like, oh, he's just trying to get a sandwich. And he comes over and I'm like, what is happening? I'm like, ah, <laughs> sore. They don't know me, you know. They know this guy. I don't know. It's just, it was just the most 
humbling thing. And he comes over and just, you know, just says, strong man, just go. And he walks away. And as he's walking towards the kitchen to get his sandwich, this guy just, all these demons come out of him. That's the only way I know to describe it. I know you're asking, like, what does that look like? It's not important. He understood something about being submitted to Christ and working out of Christ's authority and not his own. And I had been standing there for hours in my own strength, with my own will, in my own, trying to, in my own power, convince a demon to do what I told him to do. And somebody who just walking through the room just knows God has to do this. God has to do it. I have no power over this situation. All I'm going to do is just go tell this thing what to do in the name of Jesus. And he has to obey Jesus. And that was his attitude about everything. And so he just calmly does it. And I went, okay. <laughs> I got to get this. <laughs> right? I got to learn this lesson. Because this is, this is life. It's not just an amazing moment in a ministry moment where you don't want it to do and somebody else does. This is life. Is walking in not your own strength but in the authority of Christ and being submitted to him is how you do that. Saying he's Lord over me. I, my life belongs to him. What does he say about these people? They did not love their life even unto death. They did not love it. My life completely is given over to him. He's Lord. And if, if, he, if he wants me to die a martyr, he can do that. So submitting yourself to God, and if you're submitted to him, then all you need to do is oppose him. Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The supernatural world is real, and ignoring it is foolish. We should not be afraid. At least not of the one who can just take your life. You need to understand and grapple with the fact that there is a spiritual activity behind the circumstances of your life, the thoughts you have, the emotions you feel, the relationships you have, and more. But above it all stands Jesus, and he has cast the accuser down. So if Christ is in you, then you have been given his authority. It's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. It's not just a, 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 a incant, Christian incantation that we use. It actually means something. It means that if you have his name, if you can use his name, then you have his authority. It's like if, if Owen goes, I've used this example before. Owen's getting two examples this morning. But I also picked on Alina. If I say to Owen, go tell your sister to come down for dinner. If he goes and says, Eliana, come down for dinner, she's going to say, what? I'm not doing that. They're going to have an argument. I hear it right? But if he goes up there and says, Dad said, come down for dinner. No argument. Because if there's an argument, Eliana is not arguing with Owen. Who is she arguing with, really? Me. 
because Owen said it in my name. And that's what that means. So we pray in the name of Jesus. We resist the enemy in the name of Jesus. So make a habit of rebuking the devil, but do it in the name of Jesus. And then stop talking to him. Leave him alone. Glorify Jesus. Don't spend all day. I just don't do that anymore. I learned my lesson once. No stomping around like a crazy person yelling and screaming. I don't talk to demons. I don't have conversations. I don't ask them questions. I just say, get out, leave me alone. Or leave this person alone in the name of Jesus. Now let's get on and go have some lunch. Right? All right. So here's what I'd like to do. I hadn't planned on doing this. But how about we um, take a minute before we worship together and just do this. Submit yourself to Jesus. Plead the blood of the Lamb. Say, I belong to you. I'm redeemed. Any evidence the enemy might be throwing at me or accusing me with is nullified. I've been pardoned. I'm not going to argue with them anymore. I'm not going to argue with the evidence anymore. I'm just going to, all right, I'll own up to that. Lord, I'm forgiven. That's who I am. And then I'd like us to pray and just resist the devil. Wherever he's messing around with your life or your kids or your job or your relationships or your body, whatever it is, we're just going to resist him. We're not going to spend an hour doing it. We're just going to resist him, all right? And then we're going to worship Jesus. Sound good? So why don't I have our elders come up? Seems like a good idea. And so let's just pray, and then if you guys get any specific things to pray over to, go for it, all right? Why don't we all stand up? Uh, first, we just right now just uh, come underneath your lordship and submit ourselves to you once again. We belong to you. Our lives belong to you. Help us, help us not to love our lives more than we should, but to love you with everything. God, we will see our lives as um, instruments of your glory, not of not things that we own ourselves. So we submit all of that, all of, our, and in our, all of our desires and dreams and everything. The time that we have on earth and what it means belongs to you. And God, we plead the blood of Jesus over our failures. God, I pray for everyone here who feels accused themselves or has been a, uh, an, an agreement in agreement with the enemy in his accusation against others to us, where we are holding bitterness and judgments against other people. God, we take both of those things and just submit it to, your, to the cross, nail it to the cross as it were. God, we stand as your redeemed, pardoned, 
loved and forgiven and cleansed saints. We are no longer defined by our sin and failure, and we refuse to define others by their sin and their failure. God, we would be defined now once again by your death and resurrection, by your name, not ours. And God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts right now that we would wipe away every judgment we might have against other people and we would replace that judgment with the name of Jesus. And God, we pray for those that have hurt us that are not believers and I pray that you would put in us a new burden to pray them into your kingdom. God, especially those who have hurt us the worst. God, that we would see the day when they too know what it feels like to have your name written on their forehead. And so now standing in that wonderful place of freedom and forgiveness, we just stand against and resist the devil right now. We who have been forgiven, we who fear the Lord, resist you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. You have no authority over us, over our lives, over our bodies, over our relationships, over our marriages and our children. We resist you right now in the name of Jesus. God, I pray for anyone here who has been afraid because of weird supernatural experiences they've had, who are walking around carrying a fear of the enemy that's inappropriate. Lord, I pray that right now they would see you and all your might and all your power and all of your glory, your absolute, total, eternal, undiminished power, unrestrained power. God, help them to see you and that every other fear would melt away. I'm reminded when Adam and Eve first sin and received the knowledge of the good and evil. The first things that came to their mind were fear that God would see them shame. And out of that shame came fear. Lord Jesus, right now in the name of Jesus, I ask that you, almighty God, would silence any accuser of shame against our people. Lord, that you would show them that their sin is not unique, that you are able to stand with them even in that place where they had shame and Lord that you would if you would allow them to release that shame to you and turn their eyes on you in that place may you father minister to them and remove their shame and their fear as you cover them with the blood of Christ Amen.
Let's worship.